Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, President of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our our goal to make a difference. Oh, excuse me. Uh, so good morning, everyone. Uh, it's Lady Justice here with Delilah. Uh, we are awaiting our, our guest. Um, today we have a change of pace show, and I'm I'm, I'm anticipating a very interesting show. And, um, yes, uh, we are addressing a different type of topic. We are, um, our guest is Erin Carapella from Oklahoma. And uh, we are addressing a different topic today in that we are going to be delving into um, a specialized uh, business that he has created. He is a Native American Cherokee. And, um Many years ago, um, he was exploring um, his heritage, and he noticed that many of the uh, Native American maps that he happened upon were not really accurate in terms of their authenticity. And he spent many, many years trying to um, right a wrong, so to speak. Uh, and he's, and uh, he is going to be with us hopefully shortly to um, talk about that journey, uh, and um, it is a it is a crime in in a manner of speaking, because there's many things going on in the Native American community um, that are an injustice to um, many tribes these days. Not to mention the pipeline issue, but um, we I learned about this. Um, uh, a few months ago um, by doing some research of my own. And uh, so uh, why don't I bring in Delilah here and we can chat for a bit until Aaron comes on the line. So good morning, Delilah. Glad to have you. And I'm excited about doing this show. Uh, just just waiting for Aaron. Perhaps he got the, the time frame mixed up with uh, Oklahoma versus Eastern time. Right. Well, I think Aaron is on the line now. I'm so happy. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes, so, I am. Yes. Sorry Great. for the delay. Not a problem. We we just got through with some introductions and sort of, you know, uh, introducing you, and here you are. You showed up. Yay. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Aaron. <laughs> I, oh, see you. Yeah, I, I tried. To, I thought I was only an hour behind, or two. I thought I was two hours behind, so... I got up bright and early, and uh, that was an hour ago, so I realized we're only one hour behind each other. Oh, okay. Well, that can happen. It's one of those radio show things, but we're very glad to have you in any case. And so um, I just finished my introduction, and we, you know, we talked about the fact that, or I talked about the fact that this still does fit into our mission of our show because what has happened with the Native American community um, for centuries, not only uh, initially or, or recently, is, is, is 
and injustice. And I think um, whether we talk about the pipeline, and, and that may come in a future show, um, we want to talk about what you have done, who you are, and what your business is, and the fact that you're trying to right a wrong in terms of authentication. Is that not so? Yeah, yeah. I would. I don't know if I really look at it like I'm trying to right a wrong. I, I look at it more like I'm trying to dispel a lot of the myths that exist about, um, you know, just how many tribes were here, how many Native Americans were here pre-contact, you know, what has happened to the tribes, you know, why, why aren't they more visible in uh, the media and in society in general, I guess. Okay. Well, that's, that's very valid. Why don't, why don't we start with who you are, a little bit about your personal history and background. I know I read about it, but I'd like to acquaint our, our audience um, with you, and then sure. we can get into your project. So who are you, Aaron? <laughs> well, well, yeah, and, and thanks again for having me on the show. Um, well, my, my name is Aaron Carapella, and um, I, I'm, uh, I, as with many Americans, I'm, I'm mixed with all kinds of different backgrounds, but one of my backgrounds through my mom is Cherokee from Oklahoma and uh, originally our tribe came from the North Carolina you know Georgia area we traditionally covered about eight different states but um, as a child I was still trying to I was struggling with trying to understand you know what does it mean to be part Native American Um, you know what are my grandparents talking about when they talk about our our, uh, you know Native roots and uh, I, I grew up in California, pretty far away from Oklahoma or any. Uh, and also, I was born, you know, yeah, way way after the reservation and relocation period. So, as a kid, basically, I started devouring books about uh, Native history, and um, I started getting a, a real feel for, you know, quote unquote, the injustice that had happened to tribes here. And I could feel, even at a real young age that something wasn't right. You know, I, I, I understood that I didn't go to school with a lot of native American kids. You know, I, I really didn't understand why the only, most of the movies that were around were like John Wayne style movies uh, showing, you know, Westward expansion. And um, it wasn't really jiving with the books that I was reading about historical accounts of, of what happened to a lot of these people when they were defending their lands. And, um, so I guess that was kind of the start of it. And then as I got into my early teen years, uh, I started going to powwows and different social events, native social events in the, in the different cities in California. Uh, and then I joined a few organizations that fight for native rights. Um, one of those organizations was uh, for a local tribe in, in Orange County, California, that has no, there are a lot of tribes that don't have federal recognition. So in other words, they they might have, you know, thousands of descendants, but for a multitude of reasons, the federal government does not recognize them as, as a unit, as a political body. And so one of those tribes was called the Gabrieleño, another was the Juaneño in Orange County. And I spent a lot of time getting to know their people, and it, and it just felt really wrong that they had to go fight, you know, at city hall meetings to protect their, you know, sacred burial grounds or historic sites. And a lot of times they would get, you know, destroyed anyways. And um, it, it just gave me a profound sense of like, hey, there's there's a lot of needs. It, it, this is just one area of the country 
Um, we've got a whole entire country with hundreds of tribes, each of them fighting their own fights, even to the, in the modern day. Mm, very, very interesting. So you, you felt compelled to, to do something, of, something greater beyond uh, what, what you had known. You felt an, a need to make an impact. Yeah, yeah. And initially I didn't know that I was going to um, create these tribal maps. Um, part of the injustice I feel is that um, tribes have been stripped by their uh, of their very ability to name themselves. Um, so you know, a lot of these tribes, instead of a lot of people today, they'll say, you know, instead of saying I'm Nade, they'll say I'm Apache. You know, um, you know, instead of uh, the real word for the Cherokee people is Aniunwia, but you you almost never hear that word used. People just call themselves Cherokee nowadays. And those, most of those names uh, were imposed by either other tribes or Europeans. And so as, as I was kind of seeing injustices done to tribes, I was also realizing that, like, the name, the geographical names of locations have been stripped away from our tribes. Even our very own names, our, even our, you know, Native people were given Christian names, even as, as people. Um, so... You know, I, I felt as time went on, I, I started creating this map, and I literally put some poster boards on my wall as a teenager, and I started, you know, I drew North America, and I started plotting names of tribes and what they call themselves, and then maybe their more common name. And uh, this developed, you know, throughout my activism, through college, through my 20s. It, I kind of was adding more and more and more names until finally I had a lot of people pushing me to get this out to, to the public because uh, – I, I just hadn't come across anything like this before. Yeah, wow! It, it just seems like an an enormous endeavor. So you just started in, initially making notes, and then is there? Would you call yourself a map maker as you know as a trade? Um, what's what's the process for doing that? Yeah, yeah. Um, some people sometimes people erroneously refer to me as a cartographer, but I really feel like people that have that title, you know, that deserve that title are people that went to school for, you know, what they call art GIS, which is like, um, you know, learning how to do, uh, I guess, professional map making with, um, you know, with, with basically cartography programs and things like that. So I would call myself a map maker. I think what you used is correct. Um, because it's more, I guess I, I would call myself an amateur map maker, although my maps are all copywritten, and I, I use a graphic designer. He helps me actually um, put these together and make them a little bit more, um, you know, add a little bit more technicality to them than, than I could do myself. But what, what I usually do is I'll take a map that I'm going to create and I'll plot it into a, um, I'll take a blank map and put it onto a program, and then I'll literally just type names wherever they go, and then I will take that file to my graphic designer and he'll add the color. He'll add the, you know, the, he'll spruce it up with different coloring and um, different fonts and things like that. And, uh, you know, make it, make it like usable for presentations and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I call myself a map maker. I do this full time and all of the maps I make have something to do with, uh, indigenous cultures. Like right now I'm working on one for, um, 
an organization that's trying to save the whooping crane species. It's it's a cr uh, species of crane from North America that there's only about 300 of them left in the wild. And so I'm making mm -hmm. a map that, that kind of demonstrates which tribe's homelands those cranes are from, how each tribe says, you know, the whooping crane in their language. And it's also kind of a, a map to uh, show people, you know, the importance of, you know, protecting this specific bird. So uh, that's a really unique map I'm making. Most maps are like regional tribal maps, like showing, you know, villages of old, of historic tribes and things like that. But um, yeah, so it, it keeps me busy. I do this full time. Uh huh. Um, well, would you be able to give us maybe um, a sense of um, what 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 your expectations were in the beginning when you, when you started this? For example, the the map that that I have some knowledge of. I I purchased that and I ended up giving that as as a gift um, for mm -hmm. the holidays, and that's how I became you know knowledgeable for that. What what did you what did you start learning in the process of creating that particular map in your your 15 year journey? Um, well, I, I guess initially what I wanted to do is I, I just wanted a map for myself because I thought you know I've been to tons of museums and powwows and I can't find a map like this. So uh, initially, basically, it, it morphed into. You know, I want to make it, uh, I'm sick of seeing these maps with 20 or 30 tribes on them. I know there's hundreds of tribes, you know, and because I was exposed to some tiny tribes that are still struggling just to survive um, that may just have, you know, several hundred people in them or 2,000 people in them. Um, these are tribes that I was exposed to that have li had literally never been on a map before. So I wanted to create a map that had as many tribes as possible that would add tribes that have never been on a map because, you know, ev every people wants to be represented. You know, everyone wants to see that they are somehow honored and recognized. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of native Americans contact me and say, you know, Hey, uh, I've never seen my tribe on a map and this is really cool, especially because you're also using our, our real name for ourselves, you know, and that, so that always gives me a lot of, motivation to keep going and it, it makes me happy to see that people you know find value in in the maps um and, and then also a lot of non-natives also look at the maps and they say you know i had no idea there were this many people here before columbus landed you know and not that he landed here but he landed in the caribbean but um you know they say you know i didn't know this there were this many tribes i didn't know that you know they were spread all throughout the united states there there aren't a lot of gaps where where people didn't live mm -hmm. um you know and there was some there was somewhere just in the lower 48 united states there were somewhere between 35 and 50 million people at the time of european at the time that the pilgrims landed so if if you think about that, that's a massive amount of people. I, I think a lot of people, um, even Americans, believe that there might have been a million or two million people here historically. But uh, you know, in, in the entire Western Hemisphere, uh, it it comprises it comprises about one third of the landmass in the world, and 25 percent of the people were here in this part of the world. So. Um, you know, we, we were a force to reckon with it at one point, and, and we are still in some ways. We have a lot of political power. You know, our tribes are 
you know, somewhat sovereign and self-sufficient and, you know, have a lot of business ventures and things like that at this point. But, uh, you know, historically we were forces to, to be reckoned with too. And, um, there were some pretty massive uh, indigenous empires here with millions of people and, uh, you know, trading networks and societies that, um, you know, went all the way from Alaska all the way down to Argentina. But, of, of course, when the Europeans arrived here, a lot of that got disrupted and, you know, a lot of diseases killed off, you know, a lot of people. Um, just mm-hmm. here, I don't want to diverge too much, but just here in the U.S., um, about 90% of the native people died of diseases, like epidemics, like measles and smallpox. And about another 7 or 8% died from out, uh, outright genocide, like, you know, U.S. Army or vigilante groups attacking people. And so only 2 or 3% of our people survived. And, and those of us that are native, you know, we're descended from about 2 or 3% of the original people that, that somehow survived. It's It's really amazing if you think about how any any people survived, um, but you know, mm-hmm. native people are still here. And they here. want to be recognized, right, as a per, as um, as an entity of themselves. I'm just wondering for those of us that don't don't know. Um, I know mm-hmm. here in Connecticut we have certain tribes and we have casinos, and they mm-hmm. want to be recognized and have a particular status with the state. Um, uh-huh. How how do you how do you become a, a tribe? Like you're saying, um, you know, people, um, you know, they, um, a lot of their people have been wiped out and there's only, you know, X yeah. amount of percentage. But how do sure. you become sure. a recognized tribe? You know, maybe it's Native American History 101 here. <laughs> yeah. No, no problem. It's actually, uh, I think a lot of Native Americans aren't, uh, even tribal members aren't really, really exactly sure how the, all the process works. But Can you share the, that with us? Yeah. Yeah, I can. Under the Interior Department, which was called the War Department until about the 1880s, the Interior Department has a big... Uh, branch under it called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Mm-hmm. Under the Bureau of Indian Affairs, there's an umbrella of the Bureau of Indian Affairs called the Office of Federal Recognition. That's literally staffed with, you know, I'm not sure how many people it's staffed with. I know it's probably got close to 100 people or something. And they literally investigate the genealogy and, and each, you know, tribes petition. They'll, they'll create a petition and send in a literal application for tribal status. And so there are people constantly working on the genealogy of the people who have sent in petitions. And in a few cases, like the Pamunkey of Virginia, you know, Pocahontas' people, they just got federally recognized just a couple years ago. Um, But there's still six or seven other tribes in Virginia that are still trying to get federal recognition. Um, So the process is, basically, there are seven criteria under the Bureau of Indian Affairs for what makes you a, um, a a federally recognizable tribe. You know, some of those are you have to prove a historic pre-contact connection to whatever, you know, state you're in. So there's a few tribes in Connecticut you, you mentioned. So these tribes after, you know, the Pequot War and all kinds of different wars that and, and genocide and diseases, some of these people have regrouped here in the 1900s or even as far as 1800s, they've still been fighting since then. They've grouped together and they have to, they have to try to meet these seven criteria. They have to have a tribal 
a tribal council. They have to show that that tribal council has a historic connection, that they have historic roots as a unique, separate people. Uh, they have to um, have genealogical evidence. Um, There's several things, and they're pretty pretty stringent. And so there are a lot of tribes that, for political reasons, let's say they have all those criteria lined up, but then a um, it can become political because some of those tribes get approached by uh, casino ventures or other ventures, and, and they say, okay, we're going to help you with your legal battle to to make this happen, but then, you know, maybe senators or congressmen of the state will step in and say, okay, this tribe is a, you know, a fake tribe who's just trying to get a casino. So a lot of times it's not a fake tribe, but that's how the narrative begins, you know. Um, and, and there have been some fake tribes that have popped up as well. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like everyone who claims they're native are native or, or deserves to be a federally recognized tribe. But um, there, there are about 200 tribes across the nation that are, uh, that have a petition out right now and maybe one, one every few years or so gets recognized. So a lot of people have so spent their entire lives arduous process than you're saying that it takes years? Yes. Yes. There are some tribes like uh, the Lumbee of North Carolina. I think they, they've been trying to get federal status since the late 1890s. Um, you know, it, it, it was temper almost given to them in the 1950s and then it was stripped away. So they've been, you know, fighting another round of fights since then. And they, they're, they're definitely indigenous people. You know, there, there's about 55,000, Lumbee people and uh, the, you know, they, they have all those criteria met. It's just that, you know, the gov- from the government standpoint, I think what's happening is that they see, okay, this is 55,000 more Native Americans that we have to now give services to, to through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And it's a lot easier to recognize a small tribe because it's a very small group of people that you're going to have to be beholden to. Um, to, to protecting their rights and things like that because, you know, Native people have treaty rights. So that's another thing is there's about 370 treaties that were ratified through Congress that were basically an exchange. Tribes would give up part of their land and they would say, you know, we will no longer attack settlers or have disputes with non-Indians. And in exchange, the government said, said okay, in perpetuity, we will give you health, uh, you know, we will cover your health and cover um, your schooling and things like that. And so it, it was really, uh, from the tribe standpoint, an even exchange. We're giving up, you know, 95% of our homeland forever, and in exchange the government is giving us services, you know, uh, from here on, on out. So this is really a massive topic that we're that we're getting into. But basically there, there are five. Yeah, the, Delilah, there are five hundred. Why don't you jump in here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly don't know nearly what Aaron knows about the subject, so I'm I'm fascinated by what he has to tell us. And um, I think another issue that I've come across, and and I know you have too, is language. Language is so important to everyone, and. So many Native Americans were stripped of their language. Um, I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to to be invited to meet with a family on uh, the Navajo or Diné tribe. 
And mm-hmm. it was so cool to meet the grandmothers. The grandmothers, were, I was fascinated with them. And they spoke Diné. They didn't speak English. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I had a conversation with one of the younger um, grandsons and asked him, you know, do you speak the language as well? And he's like, no, I never learned it. Um, because mm-hmm. his parents and, and generations before them were taken to the boarding schools and, and they were not allowed right. to speak their language. So to have it come through the grandmothers and, you know, onto other um, generations that are, are living right now is, is very fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And, and I think, you know, the native languages should be upheld everywhere and, and even taught in schools. Yeah, yeah no, I, I completely agree with you. And, and here's a statistic. In the 1970s, uh, 90% of Navajo kids were brought up with Navajo as their first language, and now it's down to 30%. So, you know, really? what is that? Wow. You know, that's, yeah, and that's one of the strongest native languages that's out there. It's probably got about 200,000 speakers um, or close to that. Um, but yeah, that's the sad thing is, you know, in 2050, is it, is it going to be down to 5% or, or, or nothing? Um, you know, I, I live within the Cherokee nation here in Oklahoma and, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm teaching my son to the best of my ability, Cherokee, the Cherokee language, but only 1% of Cherokee children here in Oklahoma out of a population of 300,000 people, um, are, are learning Cherokee as their first language. So, you know, there's um, there there are a lot of schools or a lot of tribes have immersion schools where they're um, you know, it's like a K through eight program. In some cases, it's a K through twelve program where, you know, they they they're fully immersed in their language. So, the Cherokee Nation has a school that, uh, it, you know, they're turning out a class in eighth grade every year that that is um, certifying a hundred about 150 kids as fluent in the Cherokee language at the end of eighth grade. Um, so that's, that's great, but most tribes don't have that, you know, maybe a third of the tribes have an immersion school, but some of them are not as thorough. Like, you know, they might be learning more like phrases and conversation, but a lot of, you know, a lot of tribes don't have any speakers left, or they might just have a handful of speakers left. And, um, so, you know, the Navajo are kind of, a kind of an example to look at because they're the, the largest tribe in the, in the, in the States. But um, even they are seeing a, a very rapid language loss. So, yeah, you know, I, I think there's about 160 languages left in the United States that are still spoken by Native people. But, um, you know, originally there was about 1,000. Wow. So there's an erosion of of the culture here. And so if they're trying to reestablish that, I mean, what 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 does – what is the value in retaining that in 2017? You don't want mm-hmm. your your tribe, your culture to disappear. What what is the answer for this, Aaron? Well, you know, it's it, most native people, um, you know, come from an oral an oral tradition. So, in other words, like you know, you learn your language from your grandparents. You learn learn your cultural stories from your grandparents. So. Um, you know, but a lot of those grandparents now, uh, like you, like you alluded to, have gone through the boarding school system. Um, you know, there's no more people left that were born free before the reservation period. So, 
you know, a lot of a lot of this is a lot of tribes are having to relearn or kind of refocus their energy on on traditional things. In the midst mm-hmm. of a lot of tribes also growing rich, you know, and um, not all tribes are, but a, a lot of tribes are contending with, you know, massive, you know, budgets and all kinds of different, uh, you know, investments and things like that. And, and most of them are putting some of that money towards tribal schools and, and cultural events and things like that. So I, I would say every tribe is trying to maintain their culture to a certain degree, and some are doing it better than others. But, of course, when you've got a generation of young Native kids who are, you know, they, they want to have the latest iPhone and, you know, they, they're, they you know, playing Xbox and things like that, it's it's, it's sometimes hard. And, and they're busy with uh, public school. And, um, you know, it's very, it's not easy to explain, you know, mathematical terminology in, in our in our traditional languages, you know. So we, we've got to, uh, you know, adjust to the reality of the day we live in, but we also um, – you know, like I, I take, I try to take time whenever I can think of it to, you know, if I have to get into my um, Cherokee language, you know, dictionaries to, to learn a new word, I'll do it. If I have to call an elder who I might have to ask a word, how to say a word, I'll do it. Um, you know, I practice, uh, try to practice daily with my son speaking Cherokee and having him respond and, and make our conversations as, as fluent as possible. Um, and I'm trying to get that kind of um, ingrained in his psyche, you know, as he's growing up. And uh, I, I think as he gets older, it's going to be something that he he um, wants to hold on to and, and holds dear. But, um, you know, not all people do that. You know, sometimes they'll circle back and until they're in their 20s, they start realizing, you know, hey, I, I really should have should have held on to what my grandma talked about. Now she's gone, you know. Right. So, um, but 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 I don't want to paint a gloomy picture. There there are a lot of a lot of people who are um, you know, there's entire groups of young kids that are you know learning their language as a first language and uh, you know relearning it. And you know, almost every tribe has its own dictionaries and and audio CDs and things like that now. So there's a real push to revitalize. Our cultures, it's just that it's it's coming now. You know, under the Obama administration, um, a lot of really, really, uh, a lot of money was put forth. Um, that was one of his, um, President Obama's real um, um, kind of pivotal things he did is that he was a real uh, proponent of Native people and Native rights and languages. And um, so there was a lot of funding and efforts put, put forth. But, uh, you know, and, and then every new administration we've got to deal with, you know, are they going to take funding away? Are they going to try to terminate our tribe's federal recognition? Uh, you know, what's the future for tribes, you know? And so it's it's kind of a delicate balance, you know, but um, the, the way forward is I think the way tribes are seeing it is the way forward is to invest, uh, to basically become, um, you know, uh, financial powerhouses, and also to retain the culture simultaneously. And that, that's the way forward for a lot of people. Yeah, so one foot in history and one foot for the future in order to survive. But, um, I yeah. think that's, that's the way to go yeah. with everyone. But can you can you give us um, a, an overview with regard to the how you – how you went about the nuts and bolts of this of this fifteen year research? Did you mm-hmm. did you live a vagabond life and actually go <laughs> from place to place to place, meeting all of these uh-huh. people and becoming part of their community and and establishing their trust? 
in order to authenticate what was really going on. What was that like for you these past 15 years of research? Can can you give us a bird's eye view of that? Yeah, yeah, for, definitely. For um, maps. Yeah, well, um, I you know, one of the organizations I joined uh, is called the American Indian Movement, and it's been around since the 1960s. And so I was, uh, you know, I, I wound up on a lot of different reservations doing activism, um, which which means, you know, I, I was at land occupations very similar to like what, what's been going on up in Standing Rock in North Dakota, where, you know, we would be called out to a tribe's land to, uh, you know, protect a piece of land or, you know, protect it from development or th- there's a multitude of things we did. But um, a- as I would travel to different reservations, I would try to go to their museums or their, you know, uh, talk to their cultural people. And so, um you know that that happened, and then you know over the span of my lifetime, I've I've been to about 300 native communities in person, and at most of those, I've you know gone to their tribal museums or tried to talk to someone that you know, uh, you know met a lot of elders and, and members of their tribes and things like that. And so on top of that, I've there there most tribes have a cultural department that you can contact and so i've either you know emailed or called or sent letters to about 1200 cultural departments in canada and the us and some throughout latin america and so that's taken that's taken the most amount of time to contact tribes individually get their responses certify that i have the correct you know, orthographic spelling of their traditional name, that I'm not missing any uh, accent marks or that I'm spelling it right. Um, and then, I, then I'm then i also trying to cite all of my sources. So I have this bibliography on my website where I, I literally put, you know, uh, in MLA format, you know, which elder I spoke to on which day, you know, where I was at, um, which museum I may have attended, you know, um, so it's been a pretty pretty uh, arduous process, but I'm trying to let people know that, that you know I'm not just winging this. It's not just you know random information I'm just finding off the internet or something. Um, although you know the internet is a tool, um, I've read a lot of accounts of early explorers and you know army sergeants and uh, you know I've read probably most of the pilgrims, the Puritans' original accounts. Um, I also speak and read. Spanish fluently, so I've read like you know Columbus's journals in his you know original Castilian Spanish, um, wow. and all the major explorers. So I've I've tried to get a real firsthand account, and so I've studied old maps that like explorers like um, you know John Rolfe and people like that. You know they would make these maps before they really knew what the shape of this land looked like, but. Um, I juxtapose those with, you know, I contrast those with whatever, you know, new modern maps I find. And so I, you know, I I kind of always defer to the tribes themselves for when it comes down to, you know, this is, these are native perspective maps, but they're also historically accurate maps, if that makes sense. Yeah. Have you been embraced by and accepted by the people that you you've come across i mean for your efforts and can can you share a couple Mm. of human stories because i know when we spoke on the phone about this map you told me some really cool stories (laughs) yeah well um you know native people if you can just to circle back a little bit yep when european when europeans first came here 
Native people, for the most part, were were pretty open. Like, look at what happened with the pilgrims. You know, they were pretty much welcomed. And, you know, people said, hey, come here, you know, live here. We'll we'll teach you how to, you know, agriculture, how to to make the food that's native to here, things like that. And for the most part, that happened throughout the Americas. But as tribes were, you know, attacked and rounded up and forced onto reservations and things like that, it's created – and a lot of tribes and a lot of individual native people kind of a weariness, kind of a, uh, you know, they want to know who they're dealing with because tribes have been basically duped so many times. And so right. a lot of so times they didn't automatically they, trust you just because you, you have Cherokee blood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's not everyone. Um, a lot of people are still very traditional like that. Um, but, you know, when I when you go into a, a new community, even if I was a full-blooded Cherokee and I was going into onto like the Navajo reservation, you know, right away they would know that I don't look like a Navajo, that I look like I'm from another tribe. Um, you know, they would want to know my motive, my motives, you know, why, why I want their traditional information. Um, some tribes don't want their uh, traditional name on a map because that might be a very sacred name to them, and they don't just want that out there on a piece of on a poster somewhere. Um, so I'm dealing with a lot of cultural sensitivities as well. Mm-hmm. But in the end, in the end, uh, I introduce people to my work, and and one thing that uh, Native people do is they give gifts. So a lot of a lot of similar to what you did for your friend, you know, when you gifted her this map. Um, uh, basically, what I try to do is when someone helps me out with information, I, I send some free maps to their, you know, their youth department or their education department in, in a way to say thank you. And a lot of times if I have to update my map with a, a different spelling or a brand new tribe's uh, map on or, or name on it that I just found, um, I'll, I'll make sure I contact that person back and say, hey, thank you for your help. You know, I'm sending you a map to say thank you. And so over time, that's created, you know, people talk and, you know, people from one tribe might, you know, visit someone else and say, hey, I know that map, you know. And so the Native community is pretty tight-knit, even though each tribe is really independent. Um, And so people, I think I've developed a reputation, hopefully, um, I think that, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm not trying to just, you know, profit off of Native history or, um, you know, that my motives are clear, that I'm, my motives are to honor Native people and then also to, to hopefully just uh, kind of replace some of these older maps that didn't really have a whole lot of tribes on them. And so, yeah, I think in, in general I've been, you know, em- embraced, I guess is the word. I've literally been embraced, you know, in person where people, you know, thank me for it or sometimes they might uh, correct something that I that I have mistaken on there. And so over time these maps have been kind of like vetted, I guess is the word, where I've mm-hmm. had to kind of, uh, you know, I regularly update them. So the U.S. map that that you gifted to your friend originally had about 550 tribes on it. Now it's got 950. So, you know, over time I try, if there's a major tribe, I try to find all the different historic bands, you know, like sub-tribes maybe, it might be a better word. And then I try to place them about where they were historically. I try to center them in their traditional land. So I'm trying to expand on, you know, like, for example, the Ute Indians of Utah and Colorado. Yes, they're called the Ute, you know, in English, but they traditionally had, you know, 12 or 13 different bands all across, you know, Utah and the state of Colorado, uh, down into even into New Mexico. So uh, I put all of those bands where they 
where they were from. And, you know, they're descendants of these people, you know, who are descended from a particular band of the Utes or the Comanches, you know, and, and they want to see their, their own specific people on there. And, and I think that kind of blows a lot of people away that they, yeah. that they see that I've tried, I've tried to get that specific. And, um, you know, so yeah, and I would say, I would say 95% or higher of native people are, are pretty, pretty happy when they see the maps, but you know, they're always critics and most of the time it's some um, constructive criticism and some, <laughs> sometimes it's not, but uh, I, I deal with that and I try to improve them. Mm-hmm. Well, just so that pe- if people, I know we have a, um, in our, in our radio network in the show that Delilah created, there is a, there is one photograph of that actual map. Can you kind of physically describe in terms of there's a combination of some photographs. You can't just pick off, you know, photos and put them on there, right, because of copyrights. And, you know, yeah. it's a compilation of a lot of different information. Can you describe it for our listeners? Yeah, so so the maps that I create, I have tribal maps of the entire Americas. So the first tribe I first map I made was of the tribes of the U.S., but I also have one for you know the Canadian tribes, tribes of Mexico, all the way down. Um, so each of these maps has most of them have historic tribes. For the U.S. map, it has mostly uh, pictures um, from Edward S. Curtis, who was a famous photographer. Uh, most of his pictures are uh, open copyright, so I, I tried to put as many pictures of, you know, not just chiefs, but also women, you know, some women leaders of tribes, um, you know, children, you know, elderly, uh, to give a peep. And, and also I have a, an array of different um, types of houses, types of dwellings that people lived in across the United States and, and the hemisphere. And uh, besides the pictures, I have... Um, there are about 950 traditional names of what tribes call themselves in their own language. And I, uh, most of those translations just mean the people. You know, most tribes just call themselves the people in their own language or the people of the mountains or the people of the rivers. You know, it was kind of a geographical uh, denotation. But um, And then under that traditional name, I put the common name. So it will say, you know, Lakota, and it will, then it will say Sioux under it. It will say Numunu, and then it will say Comanche under that. And so uh, across the Americas, I have about 3,000 tribes documented. Uh, In the contiguous U.S., there's about 950. And um, so basically it just shows, you know, uh, I've centered the tribes in in about the center of their um, traditional homeland, although some tribes were you know, nomadic. So, you know, it's, it's not, these maps are not set in a specific time year. They're what, they're what is called a living map because, uh, they're the tribes on the east, in other words, well, it's hard to have a, a map like this set in a static year because, right. um, the, the tribes on that map that you have on the East coast, like the ones that met the pilgrims. So, so for, for those tribes, the time period is about 1590. Well, out in the out in the plains, some tribes like the Kiowa and the Cheyenne and the Comanche, they lived in totally different areas. Some all the way up in Canada at the time of, of the 1590s. So by the time westward expansion happened and those tribes were met at that time, they lived in the plains. 
So it's real hard to put a static year on a map like this. Um, uh, and, and it's probably always going to be like that. That's some, that's one of the things that I've kind of contended with, you know, how do I really uh, show this? But, um, you know, each tribe believes that, um, that they were put, that whatever piece of land they wound up on, that the creator or God, uh, you know, portioned off that piece of the earth for them to protect and to live on. So even if it might have not been their homeland, you know, 500 years ago, it's a land that they came to and they came to respect and uh, appreciate and, and take care of. And so that's still their homeland, even if it wasn't, um, you know, even if they moved through the seasons or or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, so, so yeah, it's not set in a static year, but what I what I call it, what I've tried to do is put every tribe in their at contact, not pre contact, but at contact location. I see. So yeah. you know when you know when Europeans arrived in the plains, that's where the Cheyenne lived. You know, uh, when the Pilgrims showed up, uh, you know, in Massachusetts and in Virginia, that's where those tribes lived at that time. Well, I could see this being very valuable to a number of different people. How do you, explain to us how do you procure this into a into a business? Are you out there doing um, presentations to schools and uh, I don't know geologists or how, what? What? How did that aspect? Yeah, yeah. Well, how I actually, you know, what what I actually do on a day to day basis is I get orders from school districts. Um, uh-huh. I get I get orders from museums, tribes. Um, I also do custom maps. Um, I just finished doing one for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, I've got a, a map of the reservate the current reservations in the United States, and so I just did a kind of an offshoot of that map for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And uh, so now, so you know, they're a lot of college professors or, you know, history teachers from public school, um, social studies teachers will order these. And, and a lot of just individuals who might be Native American or might be interested in Native culture. Um, so I've probably sold six or 7,000 of these maps. Um, and it, it keeps me very busy. Wow. And I'm constantly, yeah, I'm constantly developing new ones and, uh, you know, going back and making revisions and, um, you know, every few years I'll recontact the same cultural department I originally did and just say, you know, hey, just take another look if you could. Uh, how, do, how does your tribe's name look? So um, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's constantly things going on. I've, I've got a list on a, on a board here in my office that uh, I, I don't think I'll ever get to, but um, definitely keeps me on my toes. But, oh, a yeah, lot I, of I, I do this full time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and I... Yeah, I have to remember a lot of people's names, and um, you know, I've also got about a little over a hundred gift shops across the country that um, carry my maps that I wholesale really? them to. Um, so, like the National Museum of the American Indian is probably the most popular one, um, but you know, the Mashantucket Pequot tribe uh, there in Connecticut, right. they've got uh, they've got these in their gift shop, in their casino, and then also in their their tribal museum. So there, there's a they're pretty spread out across Canada and, and the U.S. and my, I, I'm really happy to see when they get into school districts because I know I know from firsthand from going to public school what maps are out there and most of them are you know very antiquated you know made by 
you know, people who drew some kind of like funny looking caricatures. Uh, it's, it's, they're not real <laughs> respectful in my, in my view. And they yeah. also leave off, they leave off hundreds of peoples, you know, and it, it's, it's not easy to always in, be inclusive, but I, I think uh, the extra effort is worth it. Well, it, it just sounds very, um, very exciting because it's ever changing and, and trying to keep up with things and, and it, First discussion and education and and um, just exposing people to to culture and I just think it's I just think it's great and I think it's you know I think it's a wonderful gift for whoever whoever would would appreciate it. Um, can you can you tell us we've got about uh, it's eleven forty nine right now so we still have we still have um, you know some discussion time here for for this uh-huh. aspect of our topic. But wanted to know, was there a particular find over the years that was just kind of bowled you over, or um, to say, oh my God, I, I can't believe that I that, that we discovered this and and how it, whether it be a, a particular tribe or people or um, some artifact. I mean, can you share with us a couple of those kinds of stories? Sure. Yeah, and I think you had asked me that earlier, and I I uh, I got started talking like I'm good at. It. That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, there there was an elder, um, there was an elder from a tribe up in Washington State, and I'm trying to remember exactly which tribe he was from. Um, I think he was from the Umatilla tribe, but you know, I I called this elder and I said, hey, uh, you know, I was wondering. They patched me into him when I called their main tribal number and uh, tribal office number. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm looking everywhere for how to say your tribe's traditional name. And, you know, I couldn't find any book, any online reference. Um, I couldn't find anything with this tribe's original name. And, you know, I get on – this elder gets on the phone with me and, and just right away tells me their traditional name, which is uh, Ima Tulum, and then, uh, and, then, and then tells me the translation. And he, he told me he was one of the last five speakers of his tribe's language. So I mean, really? he had that information. Ooh. Yeah, he he had the information like that, but he's one of only five people that I happen to be able to talk to, you know, in, in the world that could answer that. And uh, you know, very helpful guy. And um, there was another thing that happened about a year ago. I went to there's a tribe called the Ponca tribe, and uh, one of their branches is down here in Oklahoma. So they have a powwow every year, and I went to this powwow to meet with a linguist. Um, that works for that tribe, and she said, "Hey, do you want to do you want to meet an elder that's one of the last speakers of of this tribe's language?" And I said, "Well, yeah, of course, you know." And uh, this this man is a very revered elder, and um, I think he's about eighty eight or eighty nine years old now. His name is Henry Lieb, and um, so he started talking to me about the language, and you know, I. You know, sometimes I meet these people firsthand that that uh, you know they went through boarding schools and somehow maintained their language. And he was telling me that uh, his sister and his brother speak the language, and then two other individual Ponca elders, and uh, and that's it. That's all that's left. You know, in, in this tribe, it happened that there were only five speakers as well. That's pretty common. Um, and so you know, I I, I literally put a face to to the map, you know, um, I was asking him his tribe's original name for itself. And he was one of the only few that could probably explain it very well. And it was a really intricate explanation, um, that had to do with, uh, so basically Ponca means cutthroat 
and that's that's basically a Sioux tribal term for the Ponca people, um, because you know they were I guess very vicious towards the Sioux people. So then the name the Sioux name got stuck on them. So it's like when you say I'm a Ponca Indian, you're saying you know I'm a cutthroat kind of like savage, you know. And so it's not really a lot of times these names are not really uh, very uh, elegant or endearing towards tribes. Right. So um, you know, he was giving he he was giving me his perspective as a Ponca person about how maybe it was really the Sioux that were vicious, you know. <laughs> and so right. Um, it was very interesting, you know, and uh, I was really honored to meet the elder and, and, you know, I gave him a map and told him thank you and, and hopefully I'll see him again and, and maybe I won't see him again. I don't know. But, um, but you know, to hear him speak about like the youth of his tribe, how he was trying to empower them to learn the language and um, it, it was really fascinating. There there are several tribes here in Oklahoma. There's there's 39 federally recognized tribes here because this is where the Trail of Tears uh, happened where tribes wound up and um, there's a lot of tribes like um, the last speaker of, of um, the Wichita Indian language, uh, which Wichita, Kansas is named after them. Um, the last mm-hmm. elder just died about a year ago. You know, she was the last speaker. So that language is gone. Um, there's several like that uh, just here in the state. And, and, and every year, every year, several native languages go extinct. So, is there any way to? I was wondering as you're talking, they they go extinct. They is there any way to revive them, or is that a goal of the tribe, or or what? Once once the the last elder is gone, is it a matter of respect, and you just the language dies with them? Is that how it goes culturally? Well, like like this elder, and specifically the one I the Ponca elder, um, he he's been involved in the local public school system there um, in in Ponca City, Oklahoma, um, for years and years and years. He developed an actual uh, teaching class where he teaches. You know, uh, the way the way it's set up here is like natives go to school with non natives for the most part in in public schools. So he was teaching classrooms full of you know. Indian and non-Indian kids together how to speak at least conversational Ponca and then he had a special class for people that were more interested in learning it fluently and then he took on a few kids then he took on a few kids that would literally just like hang out with him all day and learn the language fluently and all he would speak to them was the language so that's how that's how a lot of elders are doing it on a very personal basis but there's a lot of elders too that are kind of um I think they're kind of disheartened by the fact that they're one of the last speakers and and they grew up when everyone in their tribe spoke their language. So to see, to see the majority of young people kind of turn their backs on it per se, it disheartens them so much that they don't really want to teach anyone, you know? Um, And, and I'm, I'm not trying to speak in generalities, but there are some elders that think of it that way, you know, like our tribe, our full bloods are being diluted. Our language is being diluted. This is just the way it is, you know. And they've kind of maybe I won't don't want to say given up, but they've um, that's they see it as an evolution. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a lot of elders. There's a lot a lot of elders across almost every tribe that have written dictionaries that you know well into their 80s and 90s are still traveling around trying to teach anyone that that can learn. And uh, wow. you know those people deserve those people deserve a lot of honor and respect because um 
you know, and instead of enjoying the golden years, you know, they're spending them uh, trying to keep their culture alive. And so they don't want it to die know, out. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you What would you say in terms of well, what's your goal for the future it, with regard to your business? Is it just ever improving um, on the maps that you're making, or do you want to teach teach a course eventually? I know you're teaching your son. What is it that you would like to do? I, I've thought about returning back to school to get a. Um, I have a bachelor's degree, but I've thought about returning to get a master's in Native American studies so that I could be a professor. But I, I just uh-huh. haven't been able to find that. I haven't been able to find the time with the schedule I have to keep for these maps. I I already work, you know, seventy or eighty hours a week. Um, Is it you know, just got you? A, uh, in my household. In terms of your business, do you have people yes. that help you? No, no, not really. I mean, besides the cultural people that I speak to that, you know, that are helping me with individual information, I, I'm I'm a one-man show, I guess is the way to say it. I'm, I've tried to wow. uh, I've tried to ally myself with um, some people uh, before, but once they're either in totally different geographical locations uh, or uh, people have seen how much work is involved in it, I think it's been a little overwhelming. Yeah, oh but there, there are... There are a couple other people that have kind of similar projects to me. There's a there's a guy up in Canada who has a um who has a website. It's it's called nativeland.ca and basically he has a map of all the Canadian modern tribes. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to do a project together. Um and then there there's another guy, can't remember his website right now, but um you know, I have some someone's trying to do like a um, an app for your phone where yeah. using my using my maps where let's say you're crossing from you know Nebraska and you know down into Kansas um, this this app on your phone will tell you which tribes land you're on you know wow. as you're crossing the country yeah so you can kind of say I wonder you know <laughs> for people that are kind of history buffs or things like that they can say hey I wonder what tribe is from here originally you know and so it'll say, you know, from, you know, 1850 to 1875, this tribe lived here. Before that time, this tribe lived here. So um, that's a massive project. So why would yeah, that I, be great for your next road trip? <laughs> it sounds great. Hopefully it'll be coming up soon. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But, yeah, yeah so it's a, it's a never- it's an ever-evolving project. Um, you know, I, I feel like this year, what I'm really trying to work on, uh, my goal for this year is to, uh, I'm revising all of my maps from Alaska all the way on down. And uh, when I get down to South America, I think I'm probably going to find another five or 600 tribes to add to that map. Um, wow. I'm going to try to break it down to, you know, small sub-tribes of larger tribes and things like that. Um so there's all there are always more tribes that I'm finding, and um, mm-hmm. that's kind of the frustrating thing. I, I just hope that I, I always tell people I hope that I live till I'm a hundred so I can <laughs> do half of what I want. Well, it's, well, it's I a have massive to say, project. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I I have to say for the benefit of listeners, I am the recipient of Donna's gift of your map, and um, it's a beautiful map and. You know, I, I, I honor and respect what you're doing. And if anyone out there would, would like to take advantage of 
Aaron's work and right. and all Which of the knowledge that's gone into this uh, project, you can you can get your own map at tribalnationsmaps.com, um, and I encourage you to do so. Well, thank you, thank you for that, Delilah. I appreciate it, and, and it is beautiful. I was very excited, and it was it was an honor to do that. And I know it's a special interest of yours and I've become excited about it and perhaps in the future Aaron if you're interested because we know another topic that we could potentially get into is the whole pipeline issue if you would like sure. to come on or bring bring a colleague of yours um, maybe we can plan that for, for the spring or the summer if, if you can fit it into your busy schedule so let's contemplate that Okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I know some people that have been there on the ground ground at that protest, or or some people that are kind of in leadership too. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably like to, if you would be open to that, I could invite one of those people. I I feel like someone who's been there should should maybe speak about it too. Uh, but Absolutely. Yeah, what do real... you think, Delilah? Uh, yeah, I I would I would love to do a show like that. I people don't realize. I think we take for granted that water comes out of the faucet. Um, you know, one of the things that just mm-hmm. stunned me when I was uh, able to visit with a, a Navajo family, they took us all through their land and showed us all. They showed us the caves that their ancestors hid in, so that they were um, hiding from people taking them on the long walk, which. A lot of Americans probably don't even know what that is, but yeah. one of the things that was so so sad to see was they had a big reservoir um, on the back end of their property that was completely dry, and sunflowers were growing in it. And you know, they told me that this this was our water supply, and because we you know we asked what what is what do you need most right now, and and water is it, and. Uh, for us to be polluting all of the water sources in this country um, is just—it's very aggravating oh, it's so and more. It's so, sad. so I think, yes, I would definitely, definitely want to do a show um, speaking about this issue, not just in Standing Rock. Again, I think people are are drawn to Standing Rock as, as they should be, but this is not just a Standing Rock issue. It's, it's all over. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't just affect, you know, Native Americans. It affects anyone who uh, drinks water, you know? Exactly. So, Absolutely. you know, we're, we're all, we're all human, human that. beings and interconnected, you know? Yeah. Let's do that. Let's keep in touch. Is there any other contact information we should give before we sign off? But Aaron, please do, Keep in touch with both Delilah and I, and we will schedule that other yes. show. Okay. Yeah. Thank but, you. Thank you, Delilah and, and Donna and Noah. She gave out the website already, and I, I appreciate anyone. Uh, if anyone has any uh, wants to help out or give me suggestions or just check the website out, feel free. It's um, tribalnationsmaps.com. Very, very good. Well, thank you so much for your very good work and your dedication, and it's a pleasure to have you as a friend. And we will do our next show. So we're going to sign off for today's show. Okay. Thank you, Delilah. All right. And thank you thank to you. the Shattered Life Radio. All right. Take care, everybody.